Wow. <laughs> that was so awesome. Thank you, Autumn, for that. And worship team, that was just a beautiful time of worship this morning. I appreciate everything that you guys are doing. And uh, just grateful to come every Sunday with you guys and, and worship the glorious King of the universe. That's what it's all about. In fact, that's our vision here. You, you might have noticed in your program this morning that there's a sheet just drawing your attention once again to our vision that we encapsulate in three words, worship, transformation, mission. Now worship, you can simply boil it down to this. It's all about God. It's all about God. And until we understand that, we're not going to get anything out of this life. This life is bigger than me. Transformation is the reality that I can't be all that God intends me to be unless something transformative takes place in my heart, and that's trusting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and allowing the Spirit of God to change me. And it's only until that has happened that I can then move into mission. Because God takes changed lives and He uses those changed lives to change lives. We just had our uh, annual meeting this past Wednesday and what a great time of celebration and fellowship it was to look at 2019 and to look ahead. And there were really two big ideas from that meeting that were put forward by the elders. The first was that we as a church are just starting to pray about next steps for the future. And so the elders, in, in a couple of weeks' time, will be reaching out to members in the church and seeking to put together what we were calling a vision team. Uh, the vision team is going to be looking at the priorities that we believe God's put on the hearts of our church and also looking at things like our facilities and whatnot and asking the question, does this space still accommodate the vision that we believe God's calling us to do? But i got to tell you, my, my favorite part of the meeting was we looked at the model of Acts 1.8, where Jesus talks about his disciples going into their Jerusalem, their Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we, we celebrated that, that large uh, gift, of uh, that large generosity of the church where we gave over $115,000 to the budget. And so the next question we were asking is, how? God, do you intend for us to use this? We, we don't want it to just sit in a bank somewhere and do its thing there. Uh, we believe that you've called us to be generous. And so as a church, thinking of those three domains of mission, we've decided that we are going to target our Judea and Samaria by giving a gift of $10,000 to church planting particularly the church planting relationship we just formed with Josh Wilson. Now, I had the joy of calling Josh this week and telling him that, and he was so excited. In fact, he's going to come down next week to celebrate that gift with us in church. Um, I hope you'll be there for that. That's going to be an important marker for us. And moving forward, we're going to continue to ask those types of questions. Lord, how can we be generous in Jerusalem? How can we be generous to the ends of the earth? I'm excited about this, guys. I think that God's really put something big on our hearts, and we need to move into that with Him.
Well, this morning, with all that happiness, we're going to look at the most difficult thing that Jesus ever said. So I'm excited about that. You can open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6 and verse 27. And what is the most difficult thing that Jesus ever said? Love your enemy. Do good to them. Bless them. Pray for them. Now, when I think about my enemy, I have a lot of things that I would like to do for my enemy and to my enemy, but it's none of those. In fact, when I look at a verse like this, I think to myself, how is this possible? And I'm not just talking about the large matters. I'm talking about the small matters as well. God loves to give me application when I study a passage of Scripture. He likes to say, you know, let's do a little pulse check. How are you doing on this preacher? And so just this week alone, I came across enemies, right? I was at Route 28 in Lumbert Mills about to go through the light. And this woman, I mean, there's no one behind me. It's, it's clear. Cuts me off at the light. Makes a left turn just to be first. And I'm a, I'm a little bit of a fighter, so I was a little mad. I grew up in Chicago. You, you die over that kind of stuff there. <laughs> I'm in Target. I'm about to approach a cashier. I see her step up to the register. I give her a big smile and a hearty, how are you doing kind of deal. And out of the corner of my eye, I noticed that I've accidentally cut off someone that was quickly changing lanes so that they could be there at the register. And they make the nastiest comment to me. I say, I'm so sorry. I, I, didn't, I didn't mean to cut you off. And they didn't even acknowledge my existence. Just walked away, pretended like I wasn't even there. I went into another interaction and came face to face with someone from a couple of years ago who had hurt me. Right there in the moment, how are you going to respond? You see, there's so many situations, aren't there? So many reasons to have our blood pressure rise. So many times and opportunities to go to bed angry. Love your enemies. Lord, I'm just trying to be nice to people around me, let alone love them. How can I live this? When you look at Matthew's version of Jesus' teaching, he contrasts the normal human response. Now, I, just, I want you to understand something about this. This is not a philosophical inquiry. Okay, Jesus isn't saying, is it possible for people to love their neighbor and their enemy? I mean, He's, he's not making a suggestion either. He's saying, you know, come on, guys, why don't you try loving your enemy? He's making a demand. Love your enemy. And it's a demand because that's not normal for us. Matthew 4, 5.43 is the normal hum human inclination. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I mean, this is how relationships work in the world. I have two columns. 
Over here are my neighbors. These are the people that I get along with or at least the people who haven't hurt me yet. And this other column over here represents the people who have hurt me and I have the right to hate them because they've done that. Now think of how quickly someone can move from the neighbor column to the enemy column. Imagine with me that you're getting up in the morning and you've just put on that fresh pot of coffee and you decide to open up your phone, get onto Facebook, read the feed before you get into your morning devotions, which I think you've gotten the order of operations wrong there, but you do that. And as you're scrolling down the feed, you notice that someone you thought was your friend has posted a vicious accusatory, downright mean post about you. They've maligned your character, they've insinuated motives, and they've just told the whole world. Now at first, you feel hurt. Then, you feel defensive. How could they say that about me? And then, you start thinking, how am I going to respond? Now, some of us, our response is going to be, you know what? They're in the enemy column now. I'm never talking to them again. This is done. Others of us, we have this great ability to come up with quick quips. And so you just insert that into their little comment section and you walk away like, ha got them. Others of us, we want to build a coalition around ourselves. Did you know what they said about me? And you know all the things that they do and all that kind of stuff. And so our typical response is to either ignore them, to insult them, or to destroy them. And they all grow, these responses, from the same root attitude, which is contempt. Contempt. Contempt is the feeling that a person or a thing is beneath consideration, worthless, or deserving scorn. And that's what has to happen if I put someone into the enemy column, doesn't it? I mean, I have to start believing that they're no longer worth the space that they occupy. I have to, in some way in my heart, dehumanize them a little bit. This is how they move. And one writer said this, if you want to make a lifelong enemy, show him contempt. Now, while researching for this sermon, I, I came across a study that floored me. It was conducted by the Gottman Institute, which is dedicated to improving relationships. John Gottman, a relational expert, would ask each couple to tell their story. This is kind of like that, that baseline questioning that you would do where our emotions are not really involved. And they would tell their story and he would ask them about highs and lows in their relationship, but then he would move into the points of contention in the relationship. Now get this, after watching a couple interact for just one hour, he could predict with 94% accuracy whether or not that couple would remain married within three years. Wow. And what were the biggest warning signs? They already explains indicators of contempt. These include sarcasm, sneering, hostile humor, and worst of all, 
eye-rolling. Essentially, you are saying you are worthless to the one person that you should love more than anyone. 94%. Because it's true. Hatred only produces more hatred. Now, who are these enemies? Well, it turns out that it's not actually the people that we're hearing about in the nightly news that is in some distant foreign field that I've never been to or heard about. Those are not the people that can damage you. In fact, our enemies, the people who can damage us, tend to be in the domain of home, work, and yes, even church. That's right. These are the spaces that when we're thinking about enemies, as enemies are coming to mind, we're struggling with loving these people. We're thinking to ourselves, how could I ever love them? How could I ever forgive them? I'm struggling with even being nice to them after what they did to me. Well, let me ask you a question. How is hate working for you? How's it going? It turns out that hating an enemy is hard on you because living with contempt releases the same type of hor- the same hormone that a person experiences who is going through high stress, ongoing stress in their life. That same study that I had uh, reported to you earlier, Gottman pointed out in that study that couples who are constantly battling die 20 years earlier than those who consistently seek mutual understanding. And if, if that's the physical toll, just imagine the toll on the soul. But what can I do? Someone's hurt me. Someone's done something to me. I have to respond. And in my my list of responses, it seems so limited. I can ignore them. I can insult them. Or I can destroy them. But Jesus says that's not the only response that's available to you. Luke 6.27 But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer, also, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. But come on, Jesus, are you being serious right now? Love them? Do good to them, bless them, pray for them, let them hit me, give to them. Family, that is the fourth option. Now we're going to talk about the complexities of this fourth option in just a moment, but really this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus wants you, he's demanding for you, his follower, to live a magnanimous life. And what is magnanimity? Well, it's to be generous. It's to be forgiving. Especially toward a rival. Or someone less powerful than oneself. That's what Jesus is talking about when he's saying, love them. Now the Greek language is in high definition when it comes to the word love. 
Uh, we, we look at love in our English language in only shades of gray. I love cats. I love dogs. I love trees. I love my wife. I love it when it snows. All the same word, many different varying shades and degrees of love involved there, isn't it? But in their language, they have four words that they use for love. And the word that Jesus chooses in this passage is the Greek word agape. You see, the other forms of love are motivated by who a person is or what a person has done. But agape is different. Agape rises above the natural inclinations and exists in spite of them. It is a deliberate love that is rooted in choice. But here's the thing. We sometimes diminish what agape love is because we think to ourselves, well, Jesus is talking about some kind of blind love. He's asking me to pretend like things didn't happen, to be ignorant, to be naive. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying pretend like that didn't happen to you. Don't worry about it. A, a big wave of love will build up in your heart and it will just take over everything. He's not saying that at all. What he's talking about is see them exactly as they are, in all of their ugliness, in all of their spitefulness, in all of their cursing, and all of their hatred, and all the different ways that they've used you, and all of that, seeing all of that, I want you to love them. Now, just as contempt is an attitude, so is magnanimity. It's an attitude. We can actually choose to feel, to think, even to respond to something different. This is why Jesus tells you to do good to your enemy, to bless them, even to pray for them. I mean, wouldn't that change my attitude towards someone if I did those things? And I especially want to draw your attention to the idea of blessing and prayer. Blessing carries with it the idea of refusing to allow negative thoughts to consume me, and negative words to come out of my mouth. The Proverbs talk about words a lot. In Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21, it says, Death and life are in the uh, power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its uh, those who love it will eat its fruit. So every time that my mouth is opening up, death and life are coming out of it. And I'm uh, increasingly convinced of this thought. That forgiveness in many cases is not possible because you will not stop talking. As long as you keep talking about how someone has hurt you, you are never going to find the strength to forgive them. And when I'm talking about talking, I'm talking about venting to others about them. Maybe in the context of a counselor where you're trying to understand, that's a little different. But we talk so much that we can't start forgiving. But what if I can't get myself there, my emotions there? Well, God uses your prayer life to radically change your attitude. When Martin Niemöller, a German pastor, was arrested by the Nazis in World War II, he 
prayed daily from his prison cell for his captors. And taking note of this, the fellow prisoners, they asked him, why in the world would you pray for these people? Do you know anyone who needs your prayers more than your enemies? He replied. What if you hate the person you're praying for? Do you think God doesn't know that? Do you think that He's surprised? Do you think that He doesn't understand that sometimes we just come into the prayer closet and the only thing we can really muster up is to say, God, I hate this person. I can't do it. But you tell me in your word that I need to do it, so you're going to have to do this through me? Because I just can't pull this one off, Lord. Help me. I was talking to my brother Ryan. It was a couple of years ago on the phone, and he had a, a particular employee working under him in his managerial role who he needed to walk through termination. And he was really struggling with this person. Okay, One, because walking someone through this is very stressful. <laughs> very stressful. But two, because of the the attitude and the apathy that the person was bringing into the workplace and really just destroying team morale. He shared, as I was praying for this person, God did something in my heart. I began to see as I was praying for this person that God created them, that they were made in the image of God, that Jesus died on the cross for their sins as well, and as I started to pray those things, I started to see the person the way that Jesus sees the person. And that grew a warmth in my heart. And so he still had to walk this person through termination, but he was able to do it with a heart of love for the person. Now you're thinking, wait a minute. Are you saying that I can apply this passage and, and walk someone through termination at the same time? Well, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying because listen here, church, Jesus knew that there were all kinds of perplexities and complexities that come with this command. One of the more damaging things that we can do with a passage like this is to apply it literalistically when Jesus meant for us to apply it literally. What's the difference? Well, literalistically is to read John and when Jesus says, I am the door, and to say, oh, Jesus is saying that he's a door. Isn't that nice? That's literalistically. That's absurd. But to read it literally is to look at that passage and to appreciate the depths of the metaphor and to recognize that Jesus is saying, I am the access to God. No one comes to God but through me. Well, think about the absurd places we could uh, find ourselves if we're applying this passage literalistically. Well, Jesus said, give to everyone. So when the drug addict comes to me and says that they need some drugs, I need to obey Jesus and, and give that person drugs. Or to be in an abuse situation and Jesus said, turn the other cheek. So I should just be a punching bag for a person. That's absurd. It is absolutely not what he's talking about in this passage. In fact, the, the, the perplexity and the complexity of this requires us to use our head and our heart to apply it, much like all of the Bible. Suppose you're a parent, and next week you learn that your 
babysitter who you've been trusting for some time has been physically abusing your children while you're out on your date nights. Now, after reporting them and allowing the ramifications of the law to take effect, you receive a phone call from this 14-year-old girl. And she says, I shouldn't have hit your children when I was angry. I was wrong. Would you forgive me? Now, how do you apply this? Well, Jesus says what? Forgive them. Matthew 18, forgive them 77 times. Essentially, there's an indefinite amount of times that I should forgive a person. But what if they say, can I have my job back? Well, now the answer is no, you can't have your job back. Why? Because forgiveness and trust are not the same thing. Forgiveness is something that we should extend graciously from the heart, no matter the circumstance, no matter what they've done. But trust is something that is earned and built over time. So that will mean that sometimes, while I am practicing love for people, that I actually have to establish healthy boundaries in the relationship. Uh, I might need to move someone's relational status from friendship to acquaintance. Because friendship is something special we offer to people in a two-way situation, and it's life-giving for both parties. But I still have to love everyone, right? doesn't mean everyone gets to be my friend. So healthy boundaries might actually mean severing contact with someone while they're actively seeking to be abusive to you. But if they come back in your life and say, you know, I think we need to sit down and talk. What are you going to do? Well, let me paraphrase Jesus' words to the one who has hit you on the cheek by just the name of few slandering you gossiping about you, destroying your trust. Offer the other cheek by pursuing reconciliation. Yes, even knowing that reconciliation could lead to another blow. I know. That is the most difficult thing that He's ever asked you to do. But here's the thing. Loving your enemy can also lead to greater things. Now, as I think about magnanimous people, of course, Jesus Christ is number one. But someone who is high up on my list for magnanimous living is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I think most of us in one way or another has experienced some form of discrimination. But when it comes to the type of discrimination that he experienced and, and people were experiencing, I, I really haven't experienced that before. I can't imagine living in a world where I'm scorned and hated and ridiculed just because I was born with the wrong skin color. I, I don't know how angry I would feel waking up, being born in a world, living in a world, having my children in a world where the game is literally rigged against you from the start. But that's the world he lived in. And he drew his strength 
to be magnanimous from other influential figures, both in American history and also in world history. And one of those figures for him was Abraham Lincoln, because it's well known that Lincoln was a big-hearted man. So I want to read to you a lengthy excerpt from Dr. King's sermon, Love Your Enemies, where he tells the story of Lincoln and an enemy. And I'm going to read this to you because I can't say it any better than he did. When Abraham Lincoln was running for president of the United States, there was a man who ran all around the country talking about Lincoln. He said a lot of unkind things, and sometimes he would get to the point that he would even talk about his looks, saying, you don't want a tall, lanky, ignorant man like this as the president of the United States? Finally, one day, Abraham Lincoln was elected president of the United States. Then came the time for him to choose his secretary of war. He looked across the nation and decided to choose a man by the name of Mr. Stanton. And when Abraham Lincoln stood around his advisors and mentioned the fact, they said to him, Mr. Lincoln, are you a fool? Do you know what Mr. Stanton has been saying about you? Do you know what he has tried to do to you? Do you know what he has tried, that he has tried to defeat you at every hand? Do you know that, Mr. Lincoln? Abraham Lincoln stood before the advisors around him and said, Oh yeah, I know about it. I read about it. I've heard him myself, but after looking over the country, I find that he is the best man for the job. Mr. Stanton did become a secretary of war, and later, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. And if you go to Washington, you will discover that one of the greatest words or statements ever made about Abraham Lincoln was by this man, Stanton. As Abraham Lincoln came to the end of his life, Stanton stood up and said, now he belongs to the ages. And he made a beautiful statement concerning the character and the stature of this man. If Abraham Lincoln had hated Stanton, if Abraham Lincoln had answered everything Stanton said, Abraham Lincoln would not have transformed and redeemed Stanton. Stanton would have gone to his grave hating Lincoln. And Lincoln would have gone to his grave hating Stanton. But through the power of love, Abraham Lincoln was able to redeem Stanton. It's true, isn't it? It's that same power that led Dr. King to be magnanimous and to lead a nation on to greater things. Friends, this is how revolutionary Jesus' words are in this passage. Love your enemy. Treat others the way you want to be treated. Live out of a big heart, a generous heart, a forgiving heart, and watch as you do that, that love will change things. So the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is what? Do you want to be like everyone else? Or do you want to be like God? What is everyone else like? Well, Jesus tells us what everyone else is like. If, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you good, do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. 
And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Friends, that's what everyone does. Everyone loves the people in their neighbor list. Everyone hates the people in their enemy list. That's typical. And I've got to tell you, contempt, because that's how everyone is, is destroying this nation right now. Just destroying it. I was reading a portion of a book by Arthur C. Brooks, Love Your Enemies, and it's not written from an evangelical perspective or anything like that, but he is essentially in this book talking about how party politics is destroying us. He notes that many Americans don't like it. In fact, they're fearful for the future, but for whatever reason, they're still engaging in it. Whether it's posting things on social media or following punditry that teaches you to look at the other side as your enemy and look at how stupid they are and how evil they are. He writes in the book, six of Americans have stopped talking to family or a close friend because of the 2016 presidential election. People have ended close relationships because of politics. Why does that happen? Because we all have a list, don't we? And we're so ready to move someone to the other side of the list. But Christian, you must be different than this. You must be different than this. Not just in politics, but in all areas of life, but especially when you think about politics. It's okay to be a Christian and have a political leaning. It's okay to have political convictions. But I can't read passages like this and walk away believing that Jesus is telling me to cut off relationships with people over my politics. How would Jesus have treated someone who is on the other side of the political aisle? I think he would have treated them magnanimously. Verse 35, but love your enemies and do good and lend. Expect nothing in return and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. So to be a son of of God means to be like God. And what is God like? He's merciful. He's kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Like I said before, if you really want to see magnanimous living, you have no further to go than to look at the life of Jesus. Because when Jesus came, He was the embodiment of God's love. You see this most clearly at the end of his life, when he was in that upper room with his disciples and he's washing their feet, and one disciple in particular, Jesus knows that they have plotted against him and they were about to see to it that he is crucified on the cross. And it's a beautiful picture in John 13 of Jesus reaching out to Judas. 
He begins the process of reaching out by quoting Psalm 41.9, He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. It's a reference to Ahithophel who betrayed David and, and ultimately ended up committing suicide. That reference was something that Judas would have known from the Word of God. And, and Jesus was saying that to him to, to draw him back into relationship. And he's filled with emotion. You look at John 13, 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And I've got to tell you that that emotion is not for himself. I think the emotion is for Judas, who's standing at the the edge of the cliff and he's looking down into the dark abyss and he's about to step into it. And then... The Bible says that he offers him a morsel of bread. Listen to this, commentator Kent Hughes. In the Palestinian culture, to lift a morsel from the table, dip it in the common dish, and then offer it to another was a gesture of special friendship. Judas, I know what you're about to do, but here's my friendship. Here's my heart. And Judas was the one who slammed the door on that friendship. You see, friends, when we love our enemies, we are most like Jesus. He opened the door of friendship to Judas with a morsel of bread, but he's also done much more than that for us to open the door of friendship. He didn't just offer us a morsel of bread. He laid down his life on the cross. You have to understand that your sin has separated you from God. Think of this. Think of all that God has done. He, he creates the universe. In eternity past, He conceives of you in His mind and, and He has a good purpose for your life. And He's created so many provisions around you, a habitable planet, relationships with people that will fill your life. And, and what do we show God in return when we sin against Him but contempt? We don't worship Him as the Creator. We don't thank Him for what He's done and all this provision in our life. We say, God, I'm I'm pretty good. I'm just going to ignore You with my life. I'm just going to insult You with my life. And that ends up moving us from God's list of love into the enemy list. But praise God that God loves His enemies. And he sent His Son Jesus into this world to prove to us that He loves His enemies. Will you do something with me for a moment? I want to ask each one of you to just close your eyes and, and get quiet in your heart and listen to these words from Romans chapter 5. Paul says in Romans 5, when we were utterly helpless. Christ came at just the right time and and died for us sinners. Now when most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good, but God showed His great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. You see, friends, it turns out 
that God practices what He preaches. We can all do this. We can all love our enemy, but you cannot do this without Jesus. Jesus came to save you. He came to change your heart. So the question on each of our hearts this morning must be, am I willing to let Jesus change my heart? Your first step, if you haven't trusted Jesus, is to put your faith in Him. To believe that He died on the cross for your sins. And to believe that He rose again from the dead and you can share in that new life. But it doesn't stop there. You have to still believe today that you can love your enemy, even if you've trusted Jesus and open your heart to God's transformative work. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray for this church. I pray for the people in this room.